Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, if you want to follow along. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for the good news of Jesus and the gospel. It is good to be in your house with your people. We pray that the words of of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight, O God. Um, Give me courage to, to stand on your word. Build faith in us. Thank you that we have a good gospel to build our lives on and proclaim. Help me now, Holy Spirit. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay. All right, so today we're in the second week of uh, walking through about eight weeks. We're walking through Acts chapter 2 that Deanna just read for us. Acts chapter 2, the famous passage of the early church. What were they doing? How did they respond to the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit? And we're asking, what should we be doing in light of that very first template, that very first example? These people devoted themselves to something that was very simple but very profound. And so we're going to... We're walking through the things they devoted themselves to, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to praying, to taking communion, to having everything in common, to serving one another, and on and on it goes. And so that's what we're doing, and the reason why we're refining our church in light of Acts chapter 2 is because two years ago, roughly, almost two years ago, we uh, replanted Redemption Church, and it's something we're going to have to do about every 18 to 24 months as a church family just because of the nature of the transients of of our city. And so right now we're at a time of like, let's stop and like refine and recenter and refocus ourselves on what we are to be as a people. When we replanted our church a couple of years ago, we honed in on our vision. Redemption is responding to God and the gospel through remaining faithfully present to God, self, and others. Another thing we did is we honed in what we are doing in our small groups. Our small groups run on a semester system. And they're launching in a couple of weeks. And the small groups are not just sermon-based Bible studies. You might have gone to churches that do that before. We don't, you can do that, but you can do a lot more than talk about what we hear 
on Sunday mornings with the exhortation. Rather, our groups are connection groups where people are walking the lake or going to grab sandwiches or board games groups. I heard there was a liminal spaces group the other day. I know, I'm not even defining liminal. If you know, the in-between, anyway. But I, I just found out about it. Anyway, so we have these connection groups where people are getting together just to spend time together. We have spiritual formation groups who are diving deeper into scripture and reading good sound doctrine. And we also have mentoring relationships going on in the church. So we decided to take that approach with community so you could do your own self-diagnostics and go, you know what, I actually just need to spend some time with people and put down a book. Others need to go, I need to stop hanging out with everybody and I probably need to pick up a book and read. And so we've decided to go that route with community. The other thing that we focused on is serving the, um, the outsiders of our church, the marginalized, the people that get pushed to the edges, elderly, unhoused neighbors, refugees, Title I schools, seeking to be the hands and feet of Jesus in those places. So that's what we did a couple of years ago. Now we are refining our church in light of Acts chapter two. And so today we are covering the first thing they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, the word apostles, it's a giant idea, and I'll make it very brief for time's sake here. The word apostles means sent out ones, the ones who are sent out. And they were the eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. They were commissioned to then go and proclaim the king, his reigning on his throne. They are the sent out Ones. And then that term develops a little more uh, later on in the New Testament, particularly over in the book of Ephesians. We see this word apostles again showing up. And, it, and you see it also later in the book of Acts where Paul and Barnabas are being sent out. Now, the word apostle is not unique to the New Testament. The word apostle far predated the New Testament. The word actually has its origins and basically it refers to a fleet of ships carrying precious cargo. The elders and our wives were sitting together last night having dinner, and we were talking about all kinds of things, the past of our church, present state, where we want to go in the future. And one thing that came up is we were talking about, gosh, as a staff, as elders, and certainly throughout the whole church, we want our people to feel the nature of what it is to be an apostle, a boat carrying precious cargo. The way Paul would write about it in 2 Corinthians is the, the, the earthen vessels, jars of clay, carrying out the gospel that you would feel and know how overwhelmingly honored you must feel knowing that God has not entrusted you with just the morning daily news, but he has entrusted you with the very gospel of his son, and you are sent out, that God is sovereign, that he has ordained the times and places in which we would live, whether you live here for 18 months or 80 years, you are the sent out ones, carrying out the good news of the gospel. So the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so the apostles' teaching is what we have covered throughout the New Testament, this collection of testimony and then instruction in the way that a Christian ought to live his or her life. And so the early church in the fourth century took the apostles' teaching and 
summarized and synthesized it down to just a very small but overwhelmingly powerful creed that we read a few moments ago known as the Apostles' Creed. And so this morning, I thought it would be helpful to walk through the Apostles' Creed and just comment using Scripture trying to highlight what the early church devoted themselves to. And then when you hear this preached this morning, ask yourself, do I believe that? Do I believe that? Do I believe that? So let's start here with the words, the very first words, I believe. <laughs> now, we'll go back. We can, go, we can hit Anselm first. All right. So the Apostles' Creed in the first two lines, I believe in God the Father and then I believe in Christ the Son. This is a helpful phrase, maybe not the one in yellow, unless you read Latin, but credo ut intelligum, I believe in order that I may understand. I believe in order that I may understand. This comes from the 11th century from a theologian named St. Anselm. I believe in order that I may understand. Now, if you think theology is cold, impersonal, data and doctrine, you need to understand, feel the relational nature of what it is to know God. I believe in order that I may understand, and it's completely the antithesis to how most of us are wired. I want to understand all the data, all the nuances. I want to get down, I want to understand everything I can possibly understand that's revealed in the scriptures, and then I'll place my faith. God, make sense to me, and then I'll trust you. That's a way to go about relationships. Make sense to me first. And Anselm said, no, this is the way we need to go. I believe in order that I may understand. I believe that God is triune. I believe that Christ is raised from the dead. I believe he is returning to judge the living and the dead. I believe he's gonna renew all things. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe, I believe, but I do not for one moment understand all of who God is or how God's going to do all that he's promised to do. So it's a, it's a faith statement. It's not saying, I know it all. I understand everything, and therefore I build my life on that. that that's not Christianity. It's not, I understand it all. St. Paul says, you see through a glass darkly or dimly, trying to make out a figure on the other side. I can see something. But faith says, I know there's someone on the other side of the glass. But I can't make it out perfectly. Um, faith says with Abraham, I'll walk up the mountain and I know that God's gonna provide a sacrifice, but I don't know where it's coming from. But I have faith that he's going to come through. Faith says with Peter, I don't know how to stand on water, but as long as I keep my eyes fixed here, I'm going to do what feels completely unnatural. I believe in order that I may understand. Now, let's walk through the creed. I believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in God. I believe in God. Capital G, God. I believe in God. 
I don't believe that the universe is looking out for me. I don't believe in karma. I don't believe if I'm good enough, good things come my way, and if I'm bad, then maybe you will, you know, get a flat tire or whatever. I don't believe in that. I don't believe in good luck, and I don't believe in misfortune. I believe in God. And I believe it does rain on the just and the unjust. But I believe in God. Do you believe in God? Not did your mom believe in God or your grandparents believe in God or your pastor or some saint, Anselm or whoever. Do you believe? Martin Luther said it this way, every person has to do two things and no one can do these things for them. Your own believing and your own dying. (laughs) Those are the two things you can do for sure. Do you believe? And on what grounds do you believe in God? The author of Hebrews says this, without faith it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do you believe in God? Not fate. Do you believe in God? And then it says, the the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So, So with this word creator, I believe God is before all things. The doctrine is called aseity, that no one made God. God doesn't have a birth date. God doesn't have parents. No one thought God up. God is not the result of a social collective consciousness used to like create some kind of structure and moral order and framework that we might govern ourselves. God's not the result of our clever idea. We came way late to the game. He is from eternity past. No one made God and all things are made by him, for him, and to his glory. Maker of heaven and earth. Ex nihilio, God reaches into nothing and out of nothing makes everything. There were no pre-existing materials, atoms, gases, and so on. Gravity, all that just suddenly combust and now we're just here. I believe in God as the maker. God is the maker, the designer. And this isn't just because the Bible says so. It makes sense philosophically, ontologically. I believe in God because I'm a being. And Moses says God is the I am, the ground of being. I believe in God teleologically, that there's a design to this place, that it would be insane to think that my Apple Watch had no design to it. And somehow something explodes and this comes into being? No, there's design. There's a point. Cosmologically, it philosophically makes sense to say that God is the first cause, that there is something in motion and something is sustaining life and existence as we know it. This isn't irrational, unfounded foolishness. We're talking, this is worth building your life on by just looking around. (laughs) Natural theology, general revelation. Have a look around, you can discern so much about who God is. Read Romans 1. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, creator. Oh, this is so good for a city like ours that's just filled with creative people. 
You have that instinct and that impulse because you're made in the image and the likeness of God from womb to tomb. Every human being is made in the image of God. Every human being. And I love that the creed crystallized this for us. Father, something no Jewish man or woman would have ever said in the Old Testament. God is my father. Oh, he's the father to the nation of Israel as a whole in a general sense that he provides. But no one would have the audacity to say, our father, or push even further to use Jesus' language, Abba, Father. You have a father in heaven, not a CEO. Not an indifferent, passive checked out grump who likes to keep score and has a big hammer in his hand like Thor ready to come down on you. Uh Uh-uh. Father, provider, protector, tender, present. I believe in God the Father. My faith was revolutionized in 2011 when I began to believe for the first time in my life, God really is my father. I've not been the same after. (laughs) It changes you. I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. Let's go. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. I believe in Jesus Christ. Kind of unpopular to say those words in Seattle on a Monday. It's one thing in here. I believe in Jesus Christ. His only son, John the Apostle writes, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that Jesus was begotten, not made. Meaning, (laughs) Jesus isn't an afterthought of God or even God's best part of creation. Jesus is superior to creation because Jesus is one with God. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only son of God. And then the next words, his only son, our Lord. We're gonna break every word, dude. Our Lord, our Lord. Jesus was an incredible teacher, but he is a far more than a teacher. Jesus was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. Jesus was priest, but more than a priest. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's more than a good teacher, a wisdom sage. (laughs) He is Lord. And one of the implications of Jesus' lordship means that his teaching as the capital T truth is to become our own if we are to say, I believe in him as Lord, then Jesus' vision of sex, sexuality, money, finance, violence, justice, Peace, grace, reconciliation, serving, generosity. Jesus' vision. 
for how the world is to look as the king who's been raised from the dead. If we say you are Lord, then you are Lord of all of me, regardless of how it makes me feel in certain places and times. You are my Lord, even if I have, even if I struggle to believe some things you say, or I don't trust your motives sometimes, Jesus. What are you really after? To say Jesus is Lord means that he is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. Jesus' lordship is the opposite of you do you. Napoleon, <laughs> not dynamite, uh, Bonaparte. We've been watching a lot of Napoleon dynamite around our house. And you can just feel your IQ just dropping off. Holy cow. <laughs> we do it anyway. Napoleon is attributed with saying this. I know men, and Jesus Christ is no mere man, between him and every other person in the world, there's no possible comparison. Alexander, Charlemagne, and myself have built empires. But on what did we found our empires? On blood and a sword. But Jesus Christ carried no sword, and millions of men would lay down their lives for him at this moment. H.G. Wells, the famous socialist historian, atheist, Philosopher came out of London right after the Enlightenment, and he said I, the same about Jesus. This penniless preacher from Nazareth who died with nothing, and he says, I'm a historian, I'm not a Christian at all, but this man here, this penniless preacher from Nazareth is the foundation and the very centerpiece of all human civilization. Jesus is Lord. You're not strange for confessing Jesus as Lord. We call it 2023 Anno Domini because he was here. You're not strange for confessing Jesus as Lord. And because Jesus is Lord, we don't throw up our kite every morning and open our phone and seek whatever Seattle or Twitter or the White House or your next door neighbor, you don't just throw your kite up and go, I don't know, whatever podcast is saying, I'm into. I don't throw my kite up and go, what band said this? What brand says that? And go, then, I, oh, and then off we go. I guess I'll just go this way. No. We say, Jesus is Lord. And therefore we go, Jesus, Savior, pilot me. Lead me. Show me the way. Show me the truth. I will lead myself down a path that I don't want to end up in. I give up, I surrender. I have some decent ideas, but yours are so superior. And every time I walk in the flesh, I end up repenting and feeling terrible. I can't lead myself, I need a savior. That's what Christians do. Jesus, give me your mind. Jesus, give me your spirit. Jesus, help me see the world the way you see it. Because frankly, I'm not gonna make a very good savior. And I change my mind 10,000 times a day. I need you. I change my mind, so I need you. Your standard, your truth. I surrender your Lord. 
Creed continues, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, the same Holy Spirit that hovered over creation when there was nothing, just empty water. And then a moment later, land and sea and out of the abyss, creation is coming And the Holy Spirit was hovering in the same way the Holy Spirit hovered over creation, hovers over the womb of the Virgin Mary, and she conceives miraculously. Jesus is 100% divine. Jesus is God, 100% God, and 100% human. (laughs) This is why we get on our knees and worship him. Jesus is Lord. And he suffered under Pontius Pilate. For anyone who would say, hey, shut up and preach the gospel. Don't talk politics. Who was this? A crooked, hand-washing, pandering politician who would rather just keep the peace and string up the Son of God than have a hard afternoon. The reality is, is if we say we're going to proclaim Jesus as Lord, it does have a bearing on how we view the world, including our politics. If Jesus is Lord, then he speaks into every avenue and arena of life. It doesn't mean the gospel becomes a social gospel. It doesn't mean we instantly, all we do is champion every political cause and try to get Jesus to agree with us. That is absolutely not the case. Rather, we surrender our politics to the risen king. And therefore, Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, was crucified. Every apostle in the New Testament talks about Jesus' crucifixion. Mm. that the hands of Jesus that fed thousands, the hands of Jesus that touched lepers, the hands of Jesus that held children, those blessed hands were stretched out on a cross under human violence. And as his arms were pinned open, God suddenly in his wisdom embraces his creation. But that was the only way he could actually embrace his creation. And to make all things new, Jesus was crucified. And his feet that walked through Galilee, Samaria, and across the sea (laughs) were pierced to the beam. And he was dropped in a hole in the ground. And he was lifted up. And as John the baptizer says, he's, behold, the son of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2 that in his body, he bore our sins on the tree. We revere Jesus. We bless Jesus. We honor Jesus. Jesus didn't deserve to be on his cross. Jesus chose to go to his cross in cooperation with his father that they together might accomplish the redemption of our souls. You with me? This is great news. That that cross that belonged to each of us because the wages of sin is death. And until we come to agree with that reality, Jesus just will be a good example. But Jesus is greater than an example. Jesus is our substitute who died in our place for our sins. 
so that we could become the righteousness of God. So Jesus was crucified and he died. He died. He didn't swoon. He didn't pass out. 10,000 angels did not come rescue him from his cross. Jesus died. And the light of the world was snuffed out. Matthew tells us that the sky went black for six hours as Jesus hung in agony. And the wrath of God passes over. Looking like a fool, being scoffed at by the crowds, Jesus was saving his creation. And he was buried. As Isaiah prophesied and Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man, went and took Jesus off his cross, laid him in the tomb. He died and he was buried. There's not an ounce of human existence that Jesus can't relate to, including even being buried by his own creation. Don't ever let anybody tell you that somebody can separate you from the love of God. Mm. He died. He was buried. He descended to hell. And this is a phrase that, that shows up in some early manuscripts of the creed and in others. This phrase is left out. I heard one old pastor one time say, in this, he said, when Jesus descended to hell and was laid in his grave, what was he doing for three days? This old man, I think, he, old black dude from Louisiana, he just goes, oh, he was sweeping out all the cobwebs and he was making it a nice room, a place of rest for his people. So even the grave itself turns to be a place of comfort the people that die in Christ. Peter tells us that Jesus descended to hell and that he proclaimed the gospel to those that were held in captivity. And the third day, he rose again from the dead. The apostles tell us that Jesus was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. That he was not revived or resuscitated or reincarnated, but that Jesus was gloriously resurrected from the dead. This is what the early church devoted themselves to. This is the call for us to devote ourselves to the resurrection of Jesus. And we have to remember, every prophet and good teacher and leader has come and gone. They lay in their graves. But the hope of the church, the hope of the world, the hope of creation is that Jesus is alive. And that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When he rose from the dead, he saw Mary first, remember, in the garden. And she thought, oh, it's the gardener. Oh, Mary, I'm not the gardener. And Rabbi, <laughs> he was up from the grave. And that Jesus ate breakfast with the disciples, broiled fish, 
He was no ghost. That's what he said, right? See, look, ghosts and spirits, they don't have bones like this. They're not eating with each other like this. Jesus was resurrected from the grave. And he ascended into heaven. And this is a key element to our faith. Jesus's kingly ascension back to the throne. All the ascension psalms that they're singing in the Old Testament through, right? Now we see the king ascending, rising over creation. He ascends. I've read it this morning in Ephesians 4, meaning he descended, that Jesus pre-existed all creation, descends, become part of creation, lives a life, dies his death, is buried, resurrection, and now ascends back. That he did not ascend to Rome's throne. He ascended to God's. He ascended. In, in John 17, when he was praying, he said, Father, restore me to the glory that I had with you before the ages. And that is what we celebrate in his ascension. He goes back to his rightful place, ascended. Jesus is the name above every name. To him, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Christ then he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1 says this, he's seated at God's right hand. And this is so, this is amazing. This is amazing. That the God we worship is not panicking running around the throne room. How am I going to save everybody? How am I going to figure out this creation? It's gone insane. He's not panicked. He's not up at night. He's not sweating, worried, sick that it might not work out. No, he's seated. And the, read Hebrews. It says every priest stands and works and never and tirelessly keeps serving in the temple. But not Jesus. Jesus is going to look like you in like an hour on your couch. When you get home on your chair and your lazy boy or whatever with your feet propped up. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. He has his feet propped up because his job is done. He's done. He's completely done. Not worried a bit about how he's going to save his church. You gotta, Jesus is confident in the work he's done. You can build your life on this. A seated king. Jesus, we worship you. You are Lord. Thank you for our salvation. We believe. For those of us that struggle with depression and anxiety, worry about tomorrow, regret from our past, Jesus, would you speak to us in such a way, remind us that you are seated, that our greatest need 
to be reconciled with you is accomplished and that your work is finished. We don't have to improve ourselves or just try harder to get into the family of God. We are in your family based on your work. Seated King Jesus. What a savior you are. You're a great Lord. I believe that he's seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. And then it says that he, the, of the Holy Spirit, he will come to judge the living and the dead. At the end of your life, you don't stand before a mirror or your Instagram highlight reel or all your best buddies that are like, oh man, you know, I didn't suck. You, you did great today. Like my friends tell me after half of my sermons, like, oh, that was great, dude. Like, were you listening? Anyway, but we don't stand before people that are biased one way or another. Hebrews 4 tells us that we stand before him where everything is laid naked and open before him to whom we must give an account. He will judge the living and the dead. And universalism, as much as we'd all love to believe that somehow it all works out in the end, is a lie. It's not true. Jesus and Jesus alone raised from the dead and said, there are sheep and there are goats. There are the righteous and there are the condemned. There will be a final judgment. And this is why we don't live for just this moment alone and cram our bellies full of whatever we want and our minds full of whatever we want. No, we're gonna give an account for the way we lived our lives, the way we spent our money, the way we spent our time, the way we spent our relationships, the way we lived our lives. We do give an account to our king. We do give an account to our king. Don't be the one that borrowed the cup of sugar and forgot to return it. So we give an account to the judge. And mercy will be our plea. (laughs) This is why we're clear on the gospel. This is why it's urgent that we do see ourselves as the boats that are sent out carrying precious cargo, that we do see this as something that we need to communicate to our neighborhood, that we do need to tell our city that people need a savior and thank God there is one in heaven. Thank God. But there is a judge. He will return to judge the living and the dead. Paul Bart summed up the atonement this way. He said, oh, thank God the judge has been judged in my place. That's why we cling to the cross. The judge was judged. You won't find this in any. You won't find a savior like Jesus. He's the one. I'll just keep going and finish this whole creed today. You're welcome. Man, (laughs) I believe in the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Not other gods, not self-help. No self-help, good, read some stuff, whatever. You know, set an alarm, go to the gym. Yeah, right. But I build my life in responding to the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is within you. The same Spirit that raised Christ is with you. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit doesn't come to replace Jesus. He comes to reveal him. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And I believe he gives us gifts. Young men see visions. Old men dream dreams. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Giving utterances of tongues. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Working miracles in this world. Through broken vessels like us. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That gives us conviction to live a life that is contrary to the pattern of the world. I believe in the Holy Spirit who, who empowers us. I believe in the Holy Spirit who guides us. I believe in the Holy Spirit who comforts us. Your comforter never leaves you. He will never forsake you. This is why we talk about being present to God. It's because we go missing we go absent, and the point is to just come right back to being present. No shame. Oh, I fell asleep on the job. Sorry, Lord, I'm back. Great, let's pick right up where we left off. <laughs> it is shameless. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is utterly impossible apart from the Holy Spirit. Have you tried to run on your own strength? Like we don't even make it out of the parking lot. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the Bride of Christ, the Body of Christ. This is what we covered last week. So if you'd like, you can go back and listen to that online if you like. I believe in the church. I believe in the communion of saints. This means here and now. And this can be misconstrued in different traditions with whom we would part ways with. The communion of saints is not encouraging us to go talk to St. Anselm in prayer or Augustine or Paul or even the Virgin Mary herself. The communion of saints means here and now. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and that's who we commune with. But then it translates very quickly, horizontally. I believe in the communion of saints. That there is a life that we live together, being present to one another. That we love one another the way Jesus instructs us. And by your love for one another, they'll know you're my disciples. I believe in that. <laughs> I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. in that? I mean, really. And I'm not talking about like a grumpy attitude on Sunday morning. I'm talking the day that you did I believe in the forgiveness of sins. All of them your past ones, the current addictions and struggles and things that bog us down, 
the ones you'll commit tomorrow, forgiven. Because your forgiveness is not riding on your goodness. It's riding on the resurrection of Jesus himself. He was raised for our justification. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And one consistent thing we have to do as a church family is consistently remind each other, you're forgiven of your sins. God is not holding you in debt. Jesus paid your debt. Jesus paid your debt. Somebody else suffered in your place for your sin. You're forgiven. What a relief. Like when that penny drops, it does feel like a weight just comes off. Thank you, God. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. You got to own that for yourself, though. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. All right, almost done. I believe in the resurrection of the body, your physical body, that we're not just mental, spiritual beings, just with feelings and brains <laughs> that think about God, but your physical body will be raised from the dead. Your physical body, the body that gets sick right now, the body that hurts and aches once you turn 42. But your physical body, the bodies that you visit in the hospital when someone's having surgery, where they're nearing the end. I believe in the resurrection of the body. Meaning that when we are raised on the last day, we'll get bodies the way Jesus is, is now. Unable to sin. Without corruption. Like when he raises us from the dead, we won't be able to sin. Not able. Can you imagine walking through one day not feeling a drop of temptation? It's too good to be true, and that's why it is. So the resurrection of the body. So if you know that's going to happen then, how should we treat human bodies now? With dignity, charity, compassion. God is very into the material, even though He is spirit. All right. I believe in life everlasting. <laughs> the things we like entertain ourselves with in like Indiana Jones eternal youth <laughs> life everlasting in which we're renewed and glorified with Christ that the ultimate pleasure of the beatific vision the seeing of God face to face never runs out like the smallest glimpses that we get here and there in life are those moments like, do you know when you're in the moment and you and you're say to your friend or a kid or your spouse or whoever, somebody with you, like, oh my gosh, I wish we did, I wish this we, we could just freeze this right here forever. 
you know, that moment. And then what is that? John O'Donohue would say, that's, a, that's an echo of eternity. That thing you want to freeze right there is just a glimpse of what's coming. So in heaven, we're going to have to get used to the whole, oh my gosh, I hope, I wish I could freeze this right now. And from the throne, I'll say, it's frozen. <laughs> it's life everlasting, forever. Life everlasting. That God shares God's self with us in such a way that we endure as he does by his grace. Last word, amen. <laughs> in Revelation, Jesus' name is given. He is the amen, the faithful and the true. He is the word before all words and he is the final word over all creation. He is the amen. It's finished. That's what the early church devoted themselves to. As you hear these words today, where do you need to challenge yourself? Where do you struggle? We just covered an enormous amount of theology. You know, I don't know how I feel about this or that. Challenge yourself. Sit with the words of God. Sit with the claims of Scripture. Ask God to refine you. All right. That's it. Thank you for listening.